The American History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 12, The Progressives, Part 2. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. All right, welcome back. Before we get started, as always, thank you for listening. Please visit the website, www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com. While you're there, you can sign up for the email list, check out some of the sources that are used to create the various seasons, and you can sign up for our Patreon page. Now, speaking of Patreon, if you want to help out the show and get access to our bonus series, 1983, The Year the World Almost Ended, head over to the website, click on the Patreon button down near the bottom, and for as little as $5 a month, you'll have access to that Patreon-only series, transcripts of the show, um, you get access to the shows a week before they are released publicly, you also get access to a show that I will do once a year, at least once a year, perhaps more if there's enough folks signed up, um, on a controversial topic. The first of those is already written and recorded and will be released later in July. So if that sounds like something you'd enjoy, head over there and sign up. Finally, if you're into social media, you can follow me on Twitter, at American Hiscast. I've also finally broken down and created a Facebook group for the show. Um, go over to Facebook and like the page and we can interact there. It is a great place to ask questions or comment on the show. Um, you can also email me directly. The email is sean at the American History Podcast.com. So now that we've gotten all that out of the way, let's get started. The song of the week this week is Give My Regards to Broadway by Billy Murray courtesy of the Internet Archive, as always, and we'll see you on the other side. So we left off last time with part one of our episodes on the progressives, talking about some of the muckrakers. Today we're going to get started with the so-called progressive crusaders. They sought to improve the living conditions of people in the cities, and they worked to try and reform labor for workers in general, and women and children in particular. Now, as I've said on at least one occasion, cities presented new opportunities for women. By the 1890s, over one million women had joined the workforce. Women became social workers and secretaries, store clerks and seamstresses, telephone operators, and bookkeepers. They felt that while some progress was be had been made, millions still worked in deplorable conditions, working in sweatshops and the like. 
Now, one of the most famous crusaders was Jane Addams, a woman we mentioned a few episodes back in episode 3.10, I believe. She was one of the first generation of college-educated women in the country, and she grew up in an era when teaching or volunteer work was all that was open to young women from the middle class. Now, if you remember, we mentioned she had established the Settlement House movement and was a founder of Hull House. She also helped found the NAACP, along with W.E.B. Du Bois, Oswald Garrison Villiard, and Ida B. Wells Barnett. She was a pacifist who condemned war and poverty. She won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1931. Her feminist and pacifist views led her to being labeled by T.R. in 1917 as one of the most dangerous people in America. Totally understandable. I mean, heaven forbid that one should be a pacifist, right? And I should mention by T.R. I mean President Theodore Roosevelt. Now, another area where the progressives wanted to make a difference was in the areas of women and child labor. Now, this was important because some historians believe that it was in the area of child labor where the progressives had their greatest successes. So this is where we talk about Florence Kelly. She investigated and reported on child labor while living at Hull House. She championed the welfare of women, African Americans, and consumers. She was the leader of the National Consumers League, helping to organize consumer boycotts of goods made by children or workers who toiled in unsanitary and dangerous jobs. Now one might wonder if these boycotts were effective. I'd say yes, at least to some extent. And remember, women were the primary consumer and shopper in many families. Now, when it comes to women and child, uh, child labor, there were many gains. First was the 1906 Supreme Court case, Muller v. Oregon. The court upheld an Oregon law which restricted female workers from working for more than 10 hours per day. The case was won by Louis Brandeis, who argued with, an, uh, with economic and social science evidence that women were often exploited, but weaker than men. Now, of course, today, this would be seen as chauvinistic. Now, before we go on, I want to take a look at the charge of exploitation. Specifically, when Marxists, and I'm not accusing progressives of being a Marxist, but when Marxists talk about exploitation of workers. Now, I bring this up because it's a common argument that you see not only when studying the progressive age, but you can see it even today on social media. Basically, the argument says that employers are stealing a part of their workers' labor, because the wages that the employee receives are less than the contribution of their labor to the value of the final product. In other words, profit to the employer equals theft from the worker. Now, the root of this argument is the labor theory of value. Now, this comes, as best as I can tell, from Das Kapital, but other works as well by Karl Marx. Now, I'm not going to get too deep into the woods here, so um, don't, don't worry about that, but... Um, I'll try to keep this short. Marx argued that workers were forced to sell their labor for less than the value of the commodities they produce with their labor. So think of a factory that produces widgets, or iPhones if that helps, or whatever. The workers paid, say, $10 an hour. But each of the widgets is sold for $500. Marx saw this as exploitation, because, I mean, the worker, let's say they're making 10 widgets per hour. In Marx's mind and in the minds of others, the value of the finished commodity is created by the labor. Thus, the capitalist is appropriating for himself or herself some of the value that was created by the work of the worker. So what's the problem with all this? Well, first, value is subjective. The price really isn't set by the capitalist. It's set by the consumer, and that's also subjective. I might think that an iPhone is worth, say, $1,000, but you might not. 
An Android phone might also exchange for $1,000, and you might feel it's worth it. But these two goods do not change for like amounts due to the fact that they were made with the same amount of labor. They exchange for that because the users value the ends they satisfy with the same intensity. Another problem with the idea of the worker being exploited is that he or she is paid whether or not the widget is sold. Further, the worker doesn't have to wait until the widget is sold. They're paid right now, no matter what. Thus, they are, in essence, taking a discount on their labor. People prefer to be paid today rather than next month. This is uh, the time preference, and one pays for it by getting paid less than they would if they were willing to wait. Think of sales. In sales, you can get paid commission, and you can make pretty darn good money if... And that's if you're willing to get paid for the product you sell and only the product that you sell and only after it's been sold. So the capitalist isn't exploiting labor. The widget might not sell at all. Um, the product might be a bomb, but you get paid anyway. Think of 2012 or sometime around 2012 when Amazon tried to introduce its own smartphone. Remember that? Most people don't. Um, the phone was a flop. But the workers who put them together in factories around the world got paid anyway. They didn't have to wait. So they weren't exploited. Okay, so enough of that diversion. Back to talking about the laws and the progressives. Um, there were other laws passed as well at both the state and federal level. The famous Triangle Shirtwaist Company fire in 1911 killed 146 women and workers, mostly girls. New York City and other state legislatures passed laws regulating the hours and conditions of sweatshops. Many states passed safety and sanitation codes for industry and closed certain harmful trades to juveniles. However, again, I wonder just how much of an effect this really had. I'd love to see some data, as I suspect, and this might just be my cynical nature, that what was closed to juveniles had already started to move in that direction anyway. Next, we have the Child Labor Act of 1916. This law restricted child labor on products in interstate commerce. And this was the first time Congress regulated labor within a state using the interstate commerce power. Um, the law would be struck down by the Supreme Court in 1918 on the grounds that it interfered with states' powers. Now, personally, I would have said it was unconstitutional, as the general or federal government does not have any power to regulate interstate commerce. There is no such power in the document even if I think it's something they should do. There is no um, power to regulate it in the way that we mean to regulate. Anyway, by 1916, 32 states regulated the hours and ages at which children could work. Now, some states even adopted compulsory education up to the high school level. Now, why was this happening? Well, I believe there's two reasons. Um, first, society started to view children differently. But the reason they did view them differently is that it was able to. Now stay with me for a moment. And what I mean is that American society was wealthy enough, at least in 32 states, to be able to make child labor something of the past. Thus it happened. If American society was still as poor as it had been in, say, 1800, child labor would not have been outlawed. Many of the gains for women and children or child labor in the 1910s would be struck down by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional. Thus, laws like the Child Labor Act of 1916 and even previous decisions such as Mueller v. Oregon were overturned as the court continued to try, for the most part, to provide an originalist interpretation of the Constitution. Okay, so now let's move on to some of the political reforms. 
First, Robert LaFollette and his so-called Wisconsin experiment. As governor of Wisconsin, he was the country's first progressive governor. In 1901, he was able to destroy a political machine, wrest control of the state from lumber and railroad trusts, and establish a progressive government. He worked closely with experts on the faculty of the State University at Madison, including Richard Eli. He regulated public utilities by instituting public um, utilities commissions that created legislation for worker safety, railroads, and the regulation of public utilities. As if that wasn't enough, in 1903, he pressured the state legislature into making elections open to all voters within the party, also known as the direct primary. He also introduced the initiative, referendum, and recall. Initiative allowed citizens to introduce a bill. Referendum is where voters cast ballots for or against proposed laws. And finally, recall. This gives citizens the right to remove elected officials from office. But he wasn't done yet. The governor also created the first state income tax in Wisconsin. Now, this was the first state in the United States to do so. Finally, he made sure that the existing spoil system in his state was done away with. It was replaced with a state civil service exam. The question is, was he successful? I'd say yes, at least insofar as the other states followed his lead. Republican governor of California, Hiram Johnson, broke the grip of the Southern Pacific Railroad on California's politics. Like La Follette, he then ended up settling, uh, setting up a political machine of his own, something that I should have mentioned a moment ago. Now, Charles Evans Hughes, the Republican governor of New York, earlier gained fame as an investigator of malpractice by gas and insurance companies and the coal trust. He was another progressive reformer similar to La Follette. And then you had Governor Woodrow Wilson, who turned New Jersey into one of the most progressive states in the country. So yeah, he must have, at the very least, been seen as successful, seeing as how others were then copying him. Finally, at least for La Follette, he became the first of what uh, were called Republican insurgents to reach the Senate. Here he stood against the old guard of the GOP who favored laissez-faire without government help, or so the traditional narrative goes. However, the traditional narrative is incorrect. The old guard were not against helping business. The GOP was always a party of big government and big business. It was never the party of laissez-faire. The difference is that La Follette wanted to help other interests. Now, the second major aspect of the political reforms was the institution of the Australian ballot, or the secret ballot. It was introduced more widely into states to counteract machine politics. It reduced bribery as voting was now done secretly, and the machines were unable to effectively monitor voters. However, there was one negative. Illiterate voters were eliminated as party workers could not help voters mark their ballots. Thus, hundreds of thousands of black and white voters became disenfranchised. Now finally for today, let's talk about Galveston and the commission system. In 1900, a hurricane and storm surge destroyed Galveston, Texas. In the wake of that storm, a commission system was created. The city placed power in the hands of five commissioners. Two were elected and three were appointed. Within 20 years, 400 cities adopted the commission system. It reduced the power of machine politics, at least to some extent. In some cases, these reforms valued efficiency more than democracy as civic control was further removed from the hands of the people. Of course, as I'm sure you'd expect, businessmen often dominated the commissions while the working class was not represented thanks to the decline of the machine. Okay, so this was mm, another slightly short episode, but next time we will get into the presidency of Theodore Roosevelt, and I have a feeling that that one 
will probably be a little bit longer. Until next time, have a great day. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com. Thank you.